All right, thanks for tuning in to the Episode 8 podcast. This marks the final episode of our first season of All of the Above, and we're hard at work switching a few things up for a bigger and better season two. So if you haven't already, please make sure you subscribe so that you don't miss the premiere episode of our second season. We want to thank you all for tuning into this first season as we've gotten this project off the ground, and we hope to bring you a leaner and meaner format for season two, which will premiere in a few short weeks. All right, so without further ado, let's go ahead and start episode eight of All of the Above. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, along with... Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. And if you're watching this on YouTube, please remember to subscribe to our YouTube channel. If you're watching this on Facebook, please remember to like our page and share this with your friends. And if you're tuned into the audio podcast version of this episode, Thank you for listening, and please know that you're missing out on my tie, which has a subtle frowny face on it, which captures my mood anytime news comes out of the Department of Education these days. But thank you for listening. <laughs> and we are excited to have you back. We've got another great episode for you today featuring a fascinating discussion on an issue impacting the majority of American families, that being the issue of school uniforms and dress codes. Are they the enabler of culture and safety that proponents claim, or are they a Band-Aid solution that create more problems than they solve? But first, we dive into some headlines in education in our warm-up. Our first story deals with those teacher strikes. Last spring, teachers in six states went on strike to fight for increases in education funding and teacher pay. News of the strikes flooded social media and nightly news broadcasts, but what did the public think of those teachers walking off the job? Well, a new survey by Ednext reveals that these strikes may have boosted public support for increases in education spending. The survey, the 12th annual Ednext Survey of Public Opinion, sampled roughly 4,600 people across the nation. Results show that, after being told what average teacher salary was in their state, 49% of respondents said that teachers should be paid more. This is 13 percentage points higher than last year's survey, which co-authors Martin West and Paul Peterson attribute to the wave of teacher strikes. In states where these strikes occurred, 63% of respondents were in favor of a pay increase for teachers. Some survey respondents were given information about overall education spending levels in their local school districts. 47% of these, of these respondents said that spending in their district should be increased. This is up seven points over last year's survey. Of course, not everyone supports increasing teacher pay or school spending, and this is especially true in California. For respondents who weren't told what California teachers earn, 70% favored a pay increase. But when told that teacher salaries in their state averaged nearly $73,000, only 41% of Californian respondents favored a pay increase. This is nine percentage points below the national average, but still well above last year's results. Additionally, 12% of California respondents said that teacher, sa teacher salaries should actually be decreased. Jeff, how do you read these results? Well, Manuel, I have a few different thoughts. Um, on the one hand, I think it's probably encouraging that we're seeing a growing number of people across the country uh, support the idea of raising teacher salaries and boosting funding for public school right. systems. So, you know, that's encouraging. I'm happy to see that. On the other hand, uh, I think it's also very revealing of the fact that 
people like to say that they support education. Mm -hmm. People don't like to actually carry through with what that means in reality, which yeah. is having a higher tax uh, base to fund teacher mm -hmm. salaries and to fund school infrastructure improvements, purchasing curriculum, et cetera. And mm -hmm. uh, I think there's a little bit of grappling with that truth that, that this uh, pushes us to have, which is we love the idea of our kids having the best materials, right. having great teachers who care and work hard, but those things cost money. We need to pay for them, we need to fund them. So um, I'm happy to see the progress, but I'm uh, a bit concerned that we still haven't grappled with putting our money where our mouth is when it comes to supporting education and teachers. Right, and um, I'll add that I'm encouraged to see that the strikes um, did create a, um, a increase in public support for teachers because you know I think a lot of us were worried that um, given these strikes people would be watching this on TV and and be upset that their children you know weren't going to school that day because these teachers were on strike and just the mm -hmm. sort of negative uh, backlash from it but it looks like you know the public by and large um, you know did look at these strikes in a favorable light so I'm encouraged by that yeah definitely agreed it's encouraging even though we have a ways to go still. right yeah Next up, we turn to a story about back to school shopping. Well, it's back to school time for most families around the nation, and that means it's time to hit the big box stores for those back to school supplies. Pencils, crayons, binders, notebooks, you know the drill. American families collectively spend billions on back to school shopping, and they do so with the hopes of setting our children up for success in school. Well, Unfortunately, there may be a sinister twist to the story, at least according to a new report published by the U.S. Public Interest Research Group's Education Fund. The report, published in early August, summarized their findings from laboratory tests conducted on many of the most popular school supplies, including markers, crayons, glue, spiral notebooks, rulers, three-ring binders, lunchboxes, and water bottles. They tested for toxins like lead, asbestos, phthalates, which are a chemical that makes plastic products more pliable, uh, the dreaded BPA or bisphenol A, and BTEX compounds. Those are some of the most toxic petroleum derivatives, including benzene, toluene, ethylbenzene, and xylene. Now, I'm very sorry to make your eyes cross there, but suffice it to say, they tested for some of the things that no one wants their child exposed to. Shockingly, the report notes that they found an array of problematic items, including PlaySchool brand crayons from Dollar Tree that contained asbestos, a three-ring binder also from Dollar Tree that contained high levels of phthalates, dry erase markers purchased on Amazon containing benzene, and two water bottles that have been recalled due to high levels of lead. This report, which the organization has conducted for over three decades, follows numerous public scandals in recent years of the shocking presence of toxins in things like children's toys, plastic food service items, and household products. In the end, the report mostly recommends that the corporations producing and distributing these items recall them and inform consumers about the risks. But it would seem that there is little power that government is prepared to take to mandate these sorts of actions. Now, Manuel, is it time for parents to hit the panic button and send their kids to school without those required supplies? Or is this making a big deal over a small problem? 
Well, I mean, there's definitely cause for concern anytime um, products that we use contain dangerous chemicals, and especially if those products are being used by children. Uh, so I, I definitely see this as being a very serious story. Um, looking at the, at the results of this, um, it, lo it looks like they tested 20 some odd products or 27 products, and of those, four came back containing some of these, um, some of these, some of these materials. So this isn't something in which like the overwhelming um, by and large part of, of school supplies contain dangerous products. There were a few products like for the crowns, it was just the green crown, it wasn't the whole set. However, just the green crown containing asbestos. I mean, you say asbestos and it's just like, whoa, hold up, wait a minute. And especially since, you know, kids are known to, um, you know, color and sometimes chew on crowns and all that, you don't want any of that in there. So uh, it's definitely something to look into. For me, I was most concerned with the fact that um, two of the products that were tested came from the Dollar Tree. Cause I know, you know, Dollar Tree, um, like a lot of dollar stores is somewhere where um, low income people might go to get school supplies because they can't afford um, to go to, to um, other places where school supplies might cost a lot more. So then that leads me to believe, not believe, but just think about how um, being low income uh, subjects you to a higher chance of being exposed or your children being exposed to these dangerous chemicals from products where you're trying to save some money. And you yeah. know, that's really concerning. Um, anytime something looks like those who who have little and who are trying to make it are the ones who are most exposed to something dangerous you know that's something that's a separate cause for concern as well yeah uh i totally agree with that um the one that really stood out to me was the asbestos and the markers right. uh my school in New York City, uh, when it was undergoing construction, there was a risk of asbestos in the light fixtures. Mm. Um, and when they came to replace those light fixtures, the entire school was closed. Every surface was coated in like a, right. a thick plastic tarp. Every surface, floor to ceiling, mm. all of it. Um, while they changed uh, the light fixtures, securely disposed of them, right? Like this is, this is how dangerous yeah. asbestos is, right? And we're finding this in coloring supplies for our youngest and most vulnerable students. Mm -hmm. uh, it, you know, this just, even if it's in a small number of products, shouldn't be allowed to be in any products. Right. And I wonder about the workers who are creating these products in exactly. factories and, you know, what they're being exposed to as well. Yeah. All right. So now time for our third and final story. As we mentioned earlier, those statewide teacher strikes seem to be an effective means of gaining public support and affecting change for our school system. As reported by Dana Goldstein in a recent New York Times article, there's another wave of activity around creating change in our school system, and it's taking place in courtrooms. Goldstein reports that a wave of lawsuits are taking place across a half dozen states aimed at challenging various issues around the quality of schooling. Some lawsuits target district policies that result in racially segregated schools, while others target inadequate funding levels or poor academic achievement levels. Together, these lawsuits each argue that states are violating their constitutions by denying children a quality education. The U.S. Constitution does not specifically mention schools, but almost every state constitution guarantees the right to an adequate education, which is why the education advocates behind these lawsuits are targeting state courts. Goldstein writes that the era of high-stakes accountability has produced useful test score data being used as evidence in court to argue that many children are attending schools that fail to meet academic goals. These lawsuits are already producing some victories for education advocates in some states. Last month, a New Mexico judge ruled that the state is underfunding its schools, particularly those serving large numbers of Native American, Hispanic, and low-income students. The judge set an April 15th deadline for the state to establish a new funding system. 
Jeff, we've heard a lot about the wave of teacher strikes, but what can we learn from this wave of education lawsuits? Well, I think it's fascinating that these lawsuits are cropping up and seem to be happening in greater succession uh, nowadays. Um, the, I think on the one hand, they're very promising, right? That we have, uh, we've seen that education is a system in our country that is, um, you know, that bears a legacy of some of the great crimes of our nation's past. So segregation, slavery, you know, manifest destiny. We have uh, set up structures that have shortchanged some groups and advantaged other groups. Um, and our school system has been a participant in that. So it's great to see some real firm, aggressive measures to try and correct these wrongs. On the other hand, what interests me about these lawsuits is very often they will end in settlements and not actually end in a, in a verdict or a, a final ruling from a judge. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, there's practical reasons for that, right? Uh, if you go all the way to a verdict um, or, uh, you know, a final determination, you risk losing. Um, whereas you can get a settlement that might provide, you know, significant funding or temporary relief for certain things. But the, the catch is that tends to be temporary. That doesn't tend to have the permanence and uh, perpetual force of law um, the way that, that a ruling would. So. I'm actually hoping that um, some or at least more of these cases can be brought to a, a final decision and actually bring about lasting and perpetual change rather than just some of the short-term relief that we see in, in settlements that uh, are taking place in, in many places around the country. Yeah, um, I mean, you make a lot of uh, solid points right there. And I remind our viewers that we did address a lawsuit in California over reading scores in a AOTA short that we did um, I believe it was last December. Um, but, you know, it sounds like this might be worthy of a seminar discussion if we were to bring in some um, education advocates and dig deeper into how these lawsuits might shape uh, education uh, in a national scale. Because like you said, a lot of these uh, lawsuits might end in a settlement that might not affect um, broader change. But these lawsuits could also be a roadmap for how advocates around the nation could challenge their uh, local school systems or state school systems to improve the quality of education being delivered. So, uh, you know, I think there's a lot to learn and a lot more to explore here. Absolutely. All right, quick timeout. Look, the upcoming show and tell, um, what could I say? You're going to notice some audio issues. It sounds really weird. Um, we have some high school student interns, and we decided to film the show and tell without them being present because of scheduling conflicts. And that was a mistake because the adults messed it up. So bear with us. The audio is not great. However, our guest is phenomenal. Her name is Consuelo Martinez, and she's currently a senior at UCLA, and she's here to talk about her experience transferring from community college. For my show and tell, I brought my graduation cap, which reads, Sin embargo, ella persistó, which translates to, nevertheless, she persisted. This is a phrase that I found true to what I was experiencing in the spring of 2017 when I was preparing to walk across the stage. Picture this, it's fall 2014, students from the class of 2015 are close to finishing their college applications and it is now two and a half weeks away from applications being due. I have decided not to apply. I tried to explain to people that it wasn't for me and that I wasn't ready. I simply felt like I wasn't capable of being at a university. 
Academically, I had always been an average student, and I felt like I wasn't anywhere near my peers' intellect or that of any other students outside of my high school. This left teachers and friends confused and astounded because to them, I was college material. So they pushed me to apply anyways to schools, and I did. I applied to four CSUs and four UCs, confident that I wasn't going to be accepted anywhere. I got into two schools and chose neither. I still felt like I wasn't ready to continue. I then began to entertain the idea that I was going to attend my local community college, to which teachers primarily were confused about again. Some even felt like I was letting them down because I had so much potential and because I was better than that. Hearing this brought me to tears several times, knowing that educators who I considered my supporters and who I looked to as inspirations for my future were disappointed in my choice to attend ECC. It further led into the stigma that a community college education is lesser than a four-year university. Not only this, but educators and administrators were also setting and are continuing to set the tone for what they consider a good school within four-year universities. This is obvious when a student gets into a top public university in California, like Berkeley. They would be met with more praise compared to a student who got into what some would consider a bottom-tier UC school or a Cal State. Disproportionately, students from marginalized backgrounds are more likely to enter the community college system, that is, if they are even offered the support and resources from their schools and teachers to do so. Black and brown students already have a lower chance of making it through the educational pipeline than any other demographic. And if we continue to discourage them or not give them all the options to continue in education, then we only lower their chances of getting a higher education. I, on the other hand, while feeling discouraged, went through with my plan to attend the local community college because I knew that no one is ever too good to attend UC. Being in a community college environment exposed me to students who once attended a university but had to leave for one reason or another. There are students with children, students who left schools for years but decided to come back to get a degree. Students over 50 who put off school to work and take care of their families but were now aiming for a bachelor's degree. Though community college can be considered a non-traditional path of education, for many it's a second chance or even a first chance. But all of this isn't to say that students have to attend a community college, just like they don't have to attend a UC or a private university or an Ivy League. But as educators, we must do better and be mindful when setting these expectations about attaining a higher education and what we consider a good or worthy education. We must be mindful of when placing a name brand education as the epitome of a quality education. I myself work with primarily students of color that are in high school or community college transfers. And I always remind them, it's not about where you go as long as you go somewhere. With that in mind, when it came to the fall of 2016, I began the process again of applying to colleges. My grades weren't outstanding and I was met with many challenges while in school. So I came back to my high school and utilized my resources to have all teachers and staff read my personal statements, had friends that were in the CSU and UC system read them as well until finally I submitted. Three CSU and four UC applications turned in and I was skeptical about getting into any, but in total I got into six schools, UCLA being one of them, a school I was denied to my senior year a school that 11 of my peers got into 2015, and at the time, I would have never seen myself getting into. Ironically, I was accepted into these schools with the same GPA I had senior year. 
The only difference is that I didn't want it as much as I did the second time around. But also, I had much more support behind me this time. At the end of the day, it didn't matter where I chose to transfer. All were amazing schools with different opportunities. As a daughter of Mexican immigrants and first-generation college student, anywhere I went was already more than what my family could imagine. I am currently into my second year at UCLA with hopes of graduating in the spring of 2019 with a bachelor's degree in English literature and Chicana and Chicano studies. My hopes are to become an English teacher at the high school level and eventually become a professor at a community college. With the knowledge and experience I have gained so far in my educational career, I hope to provide my students with the support and resources they need to go wherever they may need to so they can persist, just like I did. And that's my show and tell. Wow, Consuelo, very, very timely message. You know, it's college application season right now. And as a teacher who has a lot of seniors in my class, I, you know, your message really is having me rewind the tape and think back to how I've spoken about community college uh, to my students. And I think like most teachers, I, you know, students who are choosing the community college route, you know, I, I try to re I reassure them and or try to reassure them and let them know that, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. And some of the greatest minds that I could think of started through uh, community college. But at the same time, when it's time for uh, college day and uh, college fairs and all that around campus, you see you know, all the banners, all the t-shirts, they're always four-year universities. And like you said, there is this sort of unspoken or sometimes directly spoken idea that going into a community college after high school means like you've chosen a path of least resistance or that you don't really know what you're doing or you weren't good enough to go straight into a four-year college. And, and that's really problematic in a lot of ways. As a teacher, I've always thought, well, I really want to encourage my students to go directly into a four-year because statistically, um, the numbers of uh, the percentage of students who finish um, with a four-year degree within six years, um, those numbers are, are, are much more in favor of students who go directly into a four-year college versus ones who, tra ones who transfer. Um, but you know we have to break that down and kind of think about what challenges students who choose or opt for the community college might be dealing with um, that might be influencing those numbers. So as a teacher, I really want to rethink how I speak about community colleges. I'm glad you. Uh, brought us that message. I am curious, as a student who transferred into a very top tier four-year public university, um, how have you, or have you noticed people speaking to you or uh, interacting with you with any kind of particular surprise or concern about the fact that you transferred in? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, I think despite the fact that we do have a transfer community um, and you do find um, many other transfer students and even traditional students who um, welcome you very warmly. Um, there are professors and there are um, other students who look at you differently for being a transfer student, um, who may think less of you if uh, you came from a community college because they came from either a traditional route or um, professors just see um, community colleges as um, not as, how do you say? Like rigorous or anything yeah, like not that. yeah. They don't see it as uh, community college as rigorous as a four year, um, because um, unfortunately some of us do come into the four year universities and we are not um, as equipped to the four to the traditional students um, because ta classes are taught differently or sometimes our community colleges had different resources that the four years have that we didn't. Um, so it's the adjustment is difficult and some professors do understand um, and they are helpful. They are there to um, guide us through the courses and through our uh, time there at the university. But then there are also um, others that make it a little difficult for us as well. Yeah. 
Well, um, Consuelo, keep persisting, and I'm very excited about your future as an educator. Thank um, you. I can't wait to see you rock the classroom, whether as a professor or as a high school teacher, and uh, contribute all of the brilliance that you have. So thank you very much again for coming on to All the Above. Thank you so much. If you haven't been on a public school campus in the last decade or two, a visit to your neighborhood school is more than likely to come with a visual surprise. Over the last 20 years, there's been a sharp increase in the number of public schools across the nation that require students to wear uniforms or adhere to a strict dress code. In fact, the U.S. Department of Education reports that from the 1999-2000 school year to the 2015-2016 school year, the number of public schools requiring uniforms has jumped from 12% to 21%, and the percentage of schools requiring students to follow a dress code is now nearly 60%. Now, for those of you who may not be clear on the difference, a uniform will be a prescribed set of clothing options that all students must wear. For example, a specific shirt and specific types of pants and shoes. Many private schools are famous for their uniforms, and you could spot their students from a mile away, all wearing the same thing. A dress code, on the other hand, can be more flexible. A strict dress code might mandate something like students wearing black or gray pants and a light blue polo shirt. A more permissive dress code might say something like students must wear pants, a button-up shirt, and cannot wear open-toed shoes, for example. Nearly every school and district has at least some minimal limitations on what students can wear, for example, prohibiting such things as offensive hate speech on clothing or clothes that verge on nudity. As the trend towards uniforms and strict dress code policies has grown, the controversy over these policies has grown with it. And there are compelling arguments on both sides. Proponents of uniforms argue that they are a co cornerstone of a healthy and positive school culture. Uniforms communicate to students that school is a place where learning is taken seriously and promote Proponents say that the habit of dressing professionally prepares students for the workplace and for adult life. In a world where clothing stores for young women are filled with revealing shirts and barely there shorts and skirts, proponents say uniforms can help ensure that school is a place where the objectification and sexualization of young girls is not promoted. Proponents also argue that there are serious school safety implications for having uniforms. In a time of mass shootings and school intruders, uniforms are especially helpful to school staff who are responsible for supervision of massive campuses with crowds of students gathered. Also, with the presence of gangs on school campuses, uniforms can mitigate the visual presence of gangs and reduce gang activity, possibly even promoting the idea that schools are neutral territory. For smaller schools that share space on one campus, School uniforms or clear dress codes can make it possible for staff to easily determine which students belong where. There are also financial considerations. In America, families are estimated to spend about $25 billion on back-to-school shopping, the largest portion of which is spent on clothing. When impressionable teenage minds are obsessed with the competition to have the flyest, most fashionable attire, school uniforms can equalize the playing field between students whose families have money and those who don't. And many parents, for just these reasons, are big proponents of uniform policies and strict dress codes. 
On the other side of the issue, there are equally passionate advocates who suggest that uniforms and strict dress codes are just band-aid solutions that constrain students and families without actually addressing the concerns previously mentioned. And they have reason to feel this way. Research on whether or not uniforms make a difference in the quality of school is inconclusive at best. Opponents of uniforms and dress codes argue that they suppress free expression of students and curtail their First Amendment rights. They argue that the growth of uniforms and dress codes is most prevalent in urban and low-income schools and that they are a mechanism for control and subjugation of these communities, perhaps even symbolizing the school-to-prison pipeline itself. Opponents also argue that uniform policies, however well-intentioned, tend to manifest in problematic ways when analyzed through the lens of race and gender. There have been a number of cases from across the country where schools have prevented black students from entering or enrolling in school because of their hairstyles, which have all been normal, appropriate, and common hairstyles like dreadlocks, flat tops, or braided hair extensions. But these were deemed not in line with dress code expectations. Recent cases documented on viral videos have exposed the racism inherent in these schools' policies and made clear the traumatic effect such policies can have on students. On the gender front, opponents rightly point out that uniform and dress code policies often place a greater burden on girls to avoid dressing in a manner that might, quote-unquote, distract their male peers. These policies place girls in the impossible position of being responsible for the behavior of, the, of their male classmates while perpetuating the idea that girls exist for the viewing pleasure of boys and that boys' appetites are uncontrollable. And for students who are transgender, gender nonconforming, or who simply don't wish to be confined by gender-specific uniform assignments, these policies can prove not only problematic, but even damaging to self-esteem and the healthy development of gender identity. So, with so much at stake and with such powerful arguments on both sides of this issue, in today's seminar, we'll take a deep dive into the complexities surrounding school uniforms and dress codes. Are uniforms the enabler of culture and safety for students in schools, or are they ultimately a well-intentioned but problematic solution that has little actual impact in reality? All right, folks, for today's seminar, we are joined by a very special guest. We have Alana Eisen-Markowitz uh, to my left here, who is joining us all the way from New York City. Um, Alana has, since 2006, been a high school social studies teacher. She now currently serves as restorative justice coordinator at City As School in New York, which is a transfer school serving students who are over age and undercredited or considered over age and undercredited by the district. Um, she also serves on the board for an organization called Teachers Unite um, and is very involved in uh, teacher organizing and advocacy in New York City. She's also recently published uh, or co-authored a chapter in a book that's been recently published um, called Lift Us Up, Don't Push Us Out, Voices from the Front Lines of the Educational Justice Movement, which is now out on Beacon Press. And uh, perhaps most importantly, uh, way back in 2006, Ilana and I shared a classroom, uh, room 132, uh, <laughs> back true. in the day at uh, the Bronx Academy of Letters. So welcome, Ilana. It's really exciting to have you here with us. Yeah, it's good to be here. Yeah. Um, so to jump into our conversation, um, you know, we're going to be talking a lot about issues around school uniform and dress code. Um, and I love this topic because I think there are really good arguments on both sides of the issue. And uh, to kind of kick us off, why don't we start with 
Are uniforms and dress codes in the grand scheme of things a good thing or a bad thing? Um, I think I'm going to have to say that overall um, they're not a good thing. Um, I think there are actually more than just two sides to the issue, like most issues, but I think for, for where I'm at right now in my like 12th year of teaching, um, I, I really could not like think of a, of, a, of a reason to support school uniforms unless it was very clear to me that a school had like a robust democratic process of asking young people and their families if they wanted school uniforms. Um, and truthfully, I haven't been at a school where I believe there was a, a, a robust democratic process where we could really trust that the young people who were in that school building wanted a school uniform or their families wanted one. Um, and I think that would be the only reason that I would, I would support a school uniform. Hmm. Now, you've worked at a school in the past that had school uniforms. Did you see them um, solving any particular problems, or are there problems created by uniforms? Because uh, a lot of people will say that by having uniforms, they might help with safety issues and other concerns. Did you see any problems being solved by these uniforms? So I guess I'll start by saying, even though I just said I don't think that they're overall a good thing, um, I think one thing that was useful with the uniforms is we were in a building with uh, several other schools in the building. And it was useful to, to and it was, we had students who were grades 6 through 12. Um, and I, was in, I worked in the, in the high school, but we had a middle school as well. I didn't know all the middle school students. But when I saw them in the hallway and they were wearing the school uniform, I knew who they were right. in the building. And I knew that they were with our school as opposed to with the other middle school in the building. And there were times where that felt really helpful. Um, and I think there were times where that made the middle schoolers feel connected to the high schoolers. Um, so I think in, in that way, there, there are, I, can, I understand that there are some benefits to the school uniform. Um, I think overall, uh, I think it created many more opportunities for conflict specifically between teachers and um, students and took up a lot of my time, both as a teacher in an individual class classroom with students and as like part of a teacher leadership team trying to determine like consequences for various behaviors in the school. It took up so much time and energy to be talking about school uniforms. Mm -hmm. um, so it, overall, I feel like uh, that's sort of why I land on the side of like not worth the time and effort. Yeah. I think, um, you know, definitely what you're saying resonates uh, with me and having, you know, been both a teacher and an administrator in, in a school that had uniforms and in, in schools that didn't, uh, you know, the idea of the amount of time both for adults and for students that can be invested if you have students who are resistant to the uniform, um, you know, can, can definitely be something that draws time away from instruction and some of the bigger priorities that adults hopefully should be more engaged in at a school site. Um, I do think there's also, though, some, uh, some arguments to be made about the benefits, uh, both from a campus safety perspective and from a kind of campus culture perspective about um, uniforms or dress codes helping to establish um, you know, both identification, like who belongs on this campus and who doesn't, particularly on, you know, on shared campuses, like you said, um, but also from a standpoint of, you know, what are we doing together at school, right? We're, we're helping to grow young people into successful, good, older people and uh, help them, you know, learn the things that they're going to need to learn in order to be successful in that other context. And I wonder if there is also a role to play for a uniform and sort of the, um, the idea of, you know, 
getting ready for for work or getting ready for whatever space you're stepping into in life usually that has some type of either uniform or dress code or something you know i get up and i get ready for work and i i put on a certain set of clothes um so what, what do you think about that um or those kinds of arguments or rationale i think actually that truthfully that that last argument that you were just talking about um, is part of the reason that I'm the most opposed to school uniforms because I feel like they're, especially in schools, they're sort of just generally, there's like this idea of we need to prepare young people for like the real world, but actually there are multiple kinds of real worlds. Like, and, and for me as an individual teacher or for like the sm relatively small group of adults in a school building that are saying this, you know, 900 young people need to be ready for the real world as I imagine it feels like not not accurate and possibly like reproducing um, like oppressive uh, or po like policing kind of behaviors of what people should do in the real world, not just in school, but even outside of school, um, like a very singular vision of professionalism, when in reality, there's a lot of different kinds of jobs and worlds that our young people should be able to graduate from high school into. Um, and I would rather prepare them for a wider variety of, of, of different kinds of careers and spaces rather than just like one vision of what professionalism could look like. Um, and that doesn't mean that, I don't mean to say that there isn't value in communicating to young people or communicating with young people about how we dress and how we choose to present ourselves. I just think that that needs to look like a broader um, spectrum of how people can uh, be professional or can be productive members of the of, of, of like have have good jobs or be in the real world than just um, what most school uniforms are presenting as the way to be professional or the way to be intentional even about your clothing choices. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you said that because you know I've never taught in a school that had uniforms so I've always been looking at this at the uniform issue at least from the outside and I've always been concerned with this idea that uh, you know people talk about students when they're in their uniforms looking professional looking like they're ready to learn and just this idea of sort of the respectability aspect of it like mm -hmm. you know what is you know, what is looking like a student or looking like you're ready to learn? And just this idea that students need to look the way we want them to look. And I think that so much, so much of that reimagines re this factory model of education is like, you know, we're preparing workers and they're all gonna look uniform and go out there. And I hear the, you know, a lot of the arguments in favor of uniforms, mm -hmm. but I think of if I had children, I was sending them to school. I would really have a problem with the school thinking that my student needs to dress a certain way because that school doesn't know what my student's gonna end up becoming. And, and like you said, there's a lot of different visions of um, you know, what dressing professional looks like. But then I hear back, oh, it's so much easier for parents. You don't have to deal with you know, all these, you know, spending so much money for back to school clothing and things like that. With regards to how uh, parents and students feel about uniforms, um, well, I guess both of you have taught mm -hmm. students of parents who um, purchase uniforms. How did they feel about it? convenience or do they have a problem with it? Well, I would say as a principal, the overwhelming majority of parents that I spoke to were in support of the uniform mm -hmm. um, and felt like uh, it both provided a certain sense of like clarity about what like back to school shopping was gonna be. Right. Uh, you know, particularly uh, a number of parents who had, you know, multiple children. Um, you know, felt like this makes life simpler and from a cost standpoint, um, you know, as we mentioned in the, in the intro to 
um, to this segment, you know, American families spend somewhere around $25 billion a year on back to school season shopping. The largest chunk of that goes towards clothing. And in a world where there's, you know, um, so many ways to spend so much money on the latest, newest, hottest thing, um, it, it gives parents uh, a bit of an out from kind of participating in the materialism cycle that especially teenagers, I think, get, uh, get really caught up in. Um, but I also heard from families who felt like uh, it, it equalizes things a little bit from the standpoint of, um, of feeling like families who are really struggling and don't have, um, don't have means, uh, have less pressure to buy the nicest stuff. And frankly, families that didn't have enough even to buy five days worth of uniform stuff could get away with wearing the same thing every day or washing your clothes and still wearing the, you know, the same pants and shirt. Um, as a cost-saving measure and not sticking out as the kid who, you know, it, who is wearing the same stuff or is, who's coming to school with dirty clothes and that sort of thing. Um, so I heard almost no um, major objections, uh, or I shouldn't even say major, almost no objections to the uniform from, from families. Um, I can probably count on one hand the, the number of times that happened. There definitely were like nitpicky... Um, mm you know, issues where, you know, the policy was all black shoes and, you know, mom bought black Nikes and the swoosh had like a so little gray hue shoes, on the though? outside of that. But like, what purpose uh, is so that serve, things like that. The all black shoe. Like, why? Like, I'm thinking as a parent, I'd have a problem with that. Yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, from the standpoint of having a uniform and saying, mm -hmm. like, this is what we're expecting. So I favor uniforms because I think it's clarity and norming right. of expectation. Um, if you have a dress code, you open up all kinds of gray areas that then you're like fighting and arguing about. A uniform policy is pretty straightforward and generally pretty easy for families to participate in and, and follow. Um, but I also don't pretend that uniforms are right for every school, nor do I right. think that there's like a great deep moral reason for every aspect of it. Um, you know, the all black shoes was, uh, I think, from my perspective, more of a, a measure of saying, you know, we want a certain uh, kind of level of consistency and decorum in the uniform, and this is gonna be part of it so that we're taking off the table, you know, who's got the hottest hot pink highlighter shoes this year. Um, but, you know, again, yeah. I don't think that that is uh, that's going to necessarily change a, a, a young person's life trajectory, um, right. but was kind of part of the system. I think that that's sort of the, the question that you just asked, Jeff, about the all black shoes is part of what I think created issues at the school that we both worked at, even though the intention around uniforms oftentimes was about clarity and about um, equalizing the, the at least the way that it looks in the school building uh, in terms of at least from the outside like from a from a zoomed out perspective like it, it it allegedly can equalize but I think the reality was that there were little things are big and so like different students having having different kinds of all black shoes like already showed how much one family was spending on 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 clothing and shoes than right. versus another family, mm -hmm. and it like kids did know if a kid was wearing the same uniform shirt over and over and over again. Um, like that was something that I mean, it's it, they were relatively small classes. We only had ninety kids per grade. Like everybody knew those things anyway. Um, so I don't actually think that for the most part. Um, the intention was to equalize the experience and to take away some of the, the like 
too many choices about what to wear and um, to give like families who are spending different amount who are able to spend different amounts of money um, an, an opportunity to have their young people be ready l- look the same as the rest of the, the students there. I just don't actually think it did that um, mm. in a lot of cases, especially for high school. Um, I, I don't. I just didn't have as much exposure to the to the to the middle schoolers, but there were many more high schoolers who they themselves like had jobs and could buy additional things. They accessorized differently. They the the they they pushed the boundaries differently. Um, there, I found out just how wide of a range black all black pants <laughs> there could be. You know what I mean? Like it, like all of those things. Like, it, are we allowing sweatpants that are all black um, pants? Are we allowing like cargo shorts? that are all black like what's the like when when you start making rules even if they seem clear they're just not that clear sometimes and then we ended up spending a lot of time trying to navigate those like little differences um which Mm. is part of the reason why i I think the intention behind you know at least the few intentions that you've said said about trying to equalize the experience for for the young people people regardless of um, money and trying to make sure that all the students are like sort of looking the same um, for for the purposes of having them feel like connected. I don't actually think that happened um, as much as we wanted mm-hmm. it to, um, and we ended up spending too much time on like these little things. Um, I think one other thing uh, related to um, like parents and what parents wanted. I agree with with, with Jeff absolutely that mm-hmm. um, the majority of parents that I interacted with. Um, were in favor of uniforms, but I think that that's complicated in two parts. One, um, almost all the other schools, even the public schools in the immediate neighborhood that we were working in, also had uniforms. So, like at this moment in like the the like early two thousands, mm-hmm. it was a very popular thing. Like almost all this, almost all the public schools in in the South Bronx were get, were having uniforms, and so it felt like it mm-hmm. was like this is this is what we're doing. All of my students have uniforms, um, and I and I think the other thing was. It did make it easier for parents, but that doesn't—that isn't necessarily what high schoolers want. Um, and so, a lot of the high schoolers themselves were very much opposed to the uniforms, even when their parents were in favor of them, hmm. which causes issues. You know, right? And I guess I'd want to real quick, um, quickly push back on something that Jeff said about altering the trajectory, the hmm. educational trajectory of a student based on the shoes. And I, I question that because uh, for the last several years, I've I've had cohorts of freshmen who were flagged by their middle schools as, be, as being. I guess at high risk of not making it to high school graduation. And part of that was seeing, having access to their discipline record going all the way back to elementary school. And student after student, when I pull up their records, like by and large, the, the, the biggest chunk of their record was dress code, dress code, yeah. dress code. Dress code Monday, dress code violation Tuesday, um, on and on and on. And you know, without being able to um, you know, really experience that particular middle school and those uniform in the context of that middle school and why they had uniforms or not, or why any of these students didn't show up with their uniforms. Uh, part of me questioned whether or not that early on established uh, understanding by those students that they were the students that don't get with the program and are gonna be trouble one way or another. You know, I don't think it started with dress code, but I think it could add to a student's view of, you know, school isn't for me because I don't fit. I wore these shoes that I thought were fine or that my uncle gave me, and now I'm being told I can't wear these again, and F that, school's trash. That's what I wonder about, I guess. Yeah. Something as simple as shoes actually being another signifier for the student that school is not about them. It's about them fitting into school, not school mm-hmm. caring about who mm-hmm. they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think the, the two last points that you both made raise a really interesting question, which is um, 
the United States Department of Education is is uh, reporting that at this point, about 20 percent of the schools in the United, public schools in the United States have a uniform yeah. and a much larger percentage have some version of a of a clear dress code. Right. Beyond just the like, you know, you can't come naked type of stuff. Um, so uh, in a world where it's becoming more popular um, and where, uh, you know, sort of the fastest growing sector of schools, quasi public as they may be, charter schools are also um, overwhelmingly schools with with uniforms, that that's the kind of world we're living in right now. Are there things that um, schools can do or we should be doing to make sure that in a world where we have them, that we're uh, doing things that mitigate some of the negative byproducts of you know, increasing conflict with students or you know, uh, lack of clarity and the, the byproducts of that? What can we do to implement these things well if they exist? Um, I don't know. This isn't necessarily like <laughs> I, I, I'm not saying I, I believe this is easier than changing uniform policies. But I mean, inst like having robust democratic structures in the like built into the school to actually make sure that there's participation from students and families to determine what those dress codes and uniforms look like. Um, because even if the school decides like this is going to be a uniform, the school doesn't have to make every single choice that's related to that. Like if there was a process in the school for, to have people like buy in or to or or even to have like the for for like the clarity to be something that's that the like on the little things you know like does it need does it really need to be an all black shoe or can it be like whatever shoe is that not really the issue here um are there other like like clothing or like appearance things that are causing conflict in the building that the adults are not even aware of like how do we how do we have a conversation about, about that like honestly i think that would be the the underlying change that could make any of it even a little bit better and more responsive would would be some some ways to actually get meaningful participation from students and families in what that looks like. Yeah, I totally agree with that. One of the rules at the school site that I work at now is no do-rags. And right now, waves are in. Like the wavier you are as a, as a young man, like the cleaner you are. And to get those waves, you need to wear a wave cap. And that's a strict you know, school policy, no wave caps. And that's another one that I question because I think as adults, we look at someone wearing a wave cap and we have our own, or a do-rag when we have our own perceptions about, not only is it not professional, but it actually looks, it fits the mold of uh, what society would consider a thug or a dangerous person walking down the street with, with a yeah. do-rag on. And that's one of our rules. And I think that's one that students could easily participate in discussion if we gave them mm -hmm. the structures to examine whether or not do-rags are proper at school and why we are you know, questioning them versus just no do-rags, take that off. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, I think that is also a really interesting example of the complexities of this issue when you look at it through the lens of race, gender. Um, you know, we see or have seen in recent uh, months and in recent years some really uh, kind of explosive and problematic representations in the media of school uniform or dress code policies that have resulted in things like, um, you know, a six year old um, with dreadlocks being, uh, you know, ostensibly kicked out, kicked out of school because his hair is out of dress code 
or young black girls with braided hair extensions being told that, you know, that's not 100% their natural hair and therefore um, their hair is, is distracting and out of dress code. And then young girls with natural hair being told that their natural hair is not, you know, what you see most girls on, on the street wearing. And so uh, that's distracting, right? Um, we've seen situations that have very gendered expectations you know right. girls must wear skirts and you know boys must wear uh pants and um you know what does that mean for students who uh whose gender identity is not binary in that way or students who um you know feel that that's really constraining to their uh you know their healthy sense of development um so in a world where these things are going on um are there uh, are there ways in which these policies could be amended to be more or to be less problematic, um, or are these really just kind of situations with like individual bad actors who need to clean up their their act? Um, I mean, I think that there are there are there's always immediate things that adults and schools like structures can do different differently to make things better. Um, if I didn't believe that, then I wouldn't be a, an educator in a public school system that has never really served all the people that it's supposed, that it says that it's serving. Um, so of course there are things that individual teachers can do um, to like, to, to both um, revise policies that are explicitly prohibitive of like individuals, you know, gender expression um, that doesn't make sense with who their student body, their, their, student, their student population is. Um, or like eliminate policies about hair that are, are made by people who don't have the hair that they're policing, for example. Right. Um, the, like those things can absolutely change. I, st I still feel like ultimately if we are, uh, it's gonna be up to the adults to be determining what is a violation of a dress code um, or not, uh, then it's too, like having, it's too much. It's too much power. It's too much power over the like bodies and lives of young people for the in a like context where students are required by law to be in school um, to allow a dress code or uniform violation. So I guess my answer to the question about like can we do better um, or or like is it something uh, inherent to school to dress codes and uniform policies that is bad. I think my answer to both of those is yes, we can do better, and yes, it's something inherent to dress codes and uniforms that that won't ever get rid of all these problems. Hmm. Yeah, I agree with what you said there. And um, when it comes to, I guess, to Jeff's point about the ease of uniforms with uniforms, although there are still problems, like you mentioned, what, what's you know black pants, black sweats versus black cargos. Uh, although there is still some ambiguity and some problems with. Open dress code, there's a lot more problems. So, um, you know, for myself, I think of it in terms of how people use this phrase distracting and something like someone's hair being distracting. Like, how is someone's hair distracting? There are things I think that we could all agree on would be distracting and disruptive to a school environment. It's a student showing up with a swastika on their t shirt obviously is going to be disruptive because that's going to, um, you know, bring all kinds of racially charged uh, feelings in each classroom. But a girl's shoulders being exposed shouldn't be a distraction. Um, so along those lines, a lot of the clothes that are sold in malls across America have, mm. have a, I guess, increasing tendency to sexualize our youth, boys and girls, particularly girls at an early age to where it's not just a shoulder issue anymore, it's 
something that you got off the shelf that is showing almost everything or a shorts that are so short that you could see um, just a little bit of butt. And when it comes to that, where, how do we fight against the direction of sexualization of young girls without also policing their bodies or our young boys' bodies or um, anything like that? Yeah, from my perspective, I think this is one of the most compelling reasons for uniforms. Um, and uh, I think this, this particular issue about sexualization definitely hits young girls much more aggressively than it, than it hits boys, although I agree right. there are definitely like style trends that um, are probably a little less about sexualization, but still more just kind of physically inappropriate, you know, sagging, so your whole, um, you know, underwear is, is hanging mm. out um, publicly. Um, that can be problematic. But, um, you know, I think there is a role for school to play in, in saying that regardless of whether or not this is popular, um, you know, in some segment of society or in all of society, we should not be in the business. Like, I think it is immoral for schools to be in the business of supporting the hypersexualization of young girls. And I, I especially think, having been a middle school administrator, like, I especially think it's problematic with middle school age girls. Still with high school, but at least high school girls have like a little more sophistication and agency and the ability to purchase some of their own things and make some choices. Um, but I, I, I do think there's a compelling role for school to play in that. I also think on the, you know, you gave the example of the swastika, which is obviously, you know, right. just a naked hate speech um, symbol. But there's a, there's a whole host of things that are, you know, that are sort of sub swastika, right. but still not a good look, right? And I remember um, when I first started teaching uh, in the, the era of the like gangster Sesame Street t-shirt phase. <laughs> yeah. So kids were coming to school with like a, a cookie monster holding up two right. guns and like Gotta Oscar defend Grouch, those cookies, man. smoking Gotta. weed, right? And, and like, I, it's yeah. difficult for me to articulate in a very sophisticated way, but I'm like, I don't think this is this is uh, yeah. messages that schools should be in the business of saying like, yes, this is this is what we want to reinforce, and this is a good message that we should be promoting in school. Um, and so I do think there's a very important role uh, in a world where you know there are forces acting on young people at a very impressionable point in time that we as adults in a society should be communicating some message about, about what's healthy and what's unhealthy. I agree with that, definitely. Um, the, the last point that you made about like schools have a responsibility and adults working in schools who care about the young people who are there have a responsibility to engage in some of these conversations and, 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 and have like opinions and be like straightforward about what those opinions are and what the like about what we think is a good look or not and I, I especially am that I've heard you in real life like in our in school and like with young people use that phrase and I actually think it's incredibly effective like instead of having necessarily a like blanket policy that says like nobody should ever wear this thing I actually think it's more effective as an adult who has a relationship with a young person to be like honestly like not publicly necessarily but like separately to be like honestly this is not a good look like you're at school and this is what's on your shirt right now like the the and if you were not just in school like first of all like as a as a teacher and somebody who cares about you i want you to think about that carefully but also i don't like that you're wearing that shirt in front of all the rest of these these the the students here and with 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 no other like 
it feels like you're supporting that behavior um, or you're supporting the use of guns. Um, and that makes me uncomfortable in the school building and as a person who cares about you. Like, I think that's a much more effective and useful, like, uh, conversation and like message to be sending than to say like everyone has to wear a, a, burgundy, a burgundy collared shirt um ultimately you, you came in uniform I, I today i, I, I appreciate really this that is a, <laughs> um but I, I think that that's a like for me and i realize that that means many more conversations and those the, not everybody has relationships with young people in that way and there's way to, ways to have one-on-one -on -one conversations that could be oppressive or policing too so i understand that that's a complicated situation but I would much prefer that, and I think it, it is much more effective for a young person in terms of their like growth and development, um, at least for the situations that you're talking about. I also want to say that I think that if you have a like, in terms of like hate speech, I think any any ways that you that a school would be limiting or like uh, having rules against hate hate speech that's written in papers or on desks or in the school newspaper, that should also apply to clothing um, or to to like. So I think that should be an obvious one, yeah. um, but I, I, we sort of didn't get to the like, how does, for me at least, like how do we navigate the like over-sexualization of, of, of young women in particular, um, or young people who are perceived as women or who are, who mm -hmm. are perceived as, as queer, even if they aren't women, mm -hmm. um, especially around like sexualization or not wearing enough clothing or we didn't really talk about that. Um, yeah. But at, and I do have some thoughts about that, but I don't know if we... Let's go there. Let's go. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I, I feel, I really do feel like um, that is a conversation that should be had with young people. And I don't think that it always should be done. I think the way that a, a uniform policy does it um, makes it about the other people who are viewing that young woman who's like wearing very little clothing mm -hmm. and making it about like, well, if they are distracted, generally men or adults in the building, if they are distracted or made uncomfortable, then it's the, the fault of the young woman to, to make the change. And I, don't, I, I think that it's a much bigger issue than that. You know, like why is it that adults, I think, I think adults need to check ourselves and men need to check themselves um, around why is it that we are made uncomfortable by this person wearing like less clothing than we might wear or making a different like clothing choice than we might wear. And so, Expressing that discomfort to the young person, I think, is reasonable, but it needs to be done in a particular way that isn't about like, I'm I'm uncomfortable and therefore you are the problem. Um, but having a conversation that's more that's more focused around like, um, like I'm your teacher and I can literally see your nipples right now. Like, is that something that you are comfortable with? Is that what you want when you come to this building? Um, like, I've li I've had that conversation with people. I think it requires having a, a certain relationship, but I. I think turning it around so it's like about the young person making a choice for themselves rather than just about like, well, if somebody is uncomfortable or if somebody is like distracted or some or a man is having sexual thoughts about it, about a young woman, then it's the problem of the young woman is reproducing like a, a, a sexist and possibly like heterosexist um, uh, worldview, you know? Yeah. yeah I, so. There's part of me that uh, I agree with that philosophically. I have a hard time thinking about operationalizing that in terms of a real system in a school. And, um, and so, you know, what happens if that young person is, is like, nah, I'm good. You know, my mom bought me this shirt um, or I worked, you know, a whole bunch of hours at McDonald's or whatever. And I bought this shirt and I like this shirt. 
um, and I'm going to keep wearing it, right? And uh, for whatever reason, um, are we in a space where that should be okay um, in a school context? Or does the school have a compelling, from my perspective, I guess I would say, I think a school has a compelling um, role to play to say there are some boundaries that we that we need to enforce, even if in some cases individual families or society at large are communicating different expectations. Yeah, and that's the I, I as an educator, I don't know how to address that. You know, that's one of the things where you know I think I think there's a few issues in American education that are so worthy of attention and discussion, but teachers are so far from being ready to honestly <laughs> discuss. I think that's one of them, and and um, Race is another, even though there's mm -hmm. a lot of talk about it, I don't think there's a lot of sincere uh, discussion of it. But as a male educator, um, I certainly don't know how to address the young lady in class who is wearing something that uh, most will consider like way too revealing. Uncomfortable with it, don't know how to do it. I do believe that it's not really so much about um, having her think what, you know, the distraction you're causing to others, that it shouldn't be that, um, but a discussion does need to be had. And I never, not only have I never, not been trained, I don't know that just as a system we're ready for those conversations. I think that's one of the big difficulties in dress codes, just the, uh, some of the ambiguity, but also just these really entrenched issues that we just haven't addressed. Just when it comes to uh, sex, gender, race, all like yeah. we haven't addressed it. So when it shows up right there in your desk, it's difficult to engage that and I agree with you, like as an administrator, something's gotta be done, but I don't know what that is. Yeah, I think I, I, I definitely, I mean, I agree with you that like schools are the sites of like the same, we see the same things that are playing out in society. They play out with our, in our like individual interactions with young people where we see them happening right. um, among young people for sure. And that sometimes we feel ready for certain conversations or we think we're ready and then we're not, or you know, for sure. Um, and, but, I do, I, I mean, I think also you speak to the point that like, even if a school has a dress code, that hasn't actually, it, that hasn't actually engaged engaged young people or their families in having a larger conversation and they're only in school from 845 to 345 or whatever. And so if they're just, if the only thing that we've done is banned midriff shirts, then how is that actually teaching a young a young woman to think about whether they want to be wearing a midriff shirt or not? Do you know what I mean? Right. Like that doesn't actually do the thing that I think like it sounds like you want uniforms to do. Does that make sense? Um, so and that doesn't quite get to your point about like practically what do we do? You know, in the in in those moments. Um, but I don't I don't think that it actually teaches. I don't think that a school uniform does. I don't think that it for most people. I don't think it teaches them to make their own decisions about their how, how they're going to dress and um, like express themselves um, that it, that fits with who they are or how they want to be perceived in the world. Yeah, I think for me, I think of the uniform as a little bit like um, many of the other rules in school, right? That like you, I think your point about the rule not being a, a, an instructional tool is really important, right? And oftentimes we establish a rule and then we um, perhaps uh, make the assumption that the fact that that rule exists and is now going to be enforced means therefore the, the mindset that we were, right. you know, optimistically hoping was gonna be built is now established, right? Like you can't hit people, now we are a loving community, <laughs> right? Uh, like it's not that simple. Um, but at the same time, it's important that that rule that says you can't hit people is in place, even if we haven't yet done a good enough job about 
building and teaching around how to be a loving community. And I think in some ways, to me at least, a, a uniform function similarly when it comes to dress. Like, we've definitely had nowhere near enough discussion about, you know, positive self-image and sexualization of girls and, you know, communicating of messages that are like, internalized depression on a t-shirt and stuff, right? Um, we have a lot of work to do there, but I'm also grateful that there are, at least in some cases, um, rules that say there's gonna be a boundary on what can be allowed in this space, even if, um, even if in the moment I'm not changing anyone's mindset, I'm communicating that this is unacceptable and we could still have the conversation later about it. So I think that uh, contemplative silence uh, is our is our key. Um, we've come to the end of our discussion. I really quick question for you. Ah, okay. So Jeff Garrett, you're opening up. Let's say you're opening up a school tomorrow. High school uniform? Or no uniform. I would probably say uniform. I knew it. Yeah, I knew yeah. it. <laughs> I would. You're opening up a school tomorrow. High school? No, no uniform. Yeah. At least to to start the school. Yeah. Same. And I'm not mad at that choice yeah. at all. <laughs> I understand. Uh, but I really want to thank our guest today. Um, it's our first guest to have traveled all the way across country. We chartered yes. a plane uh, yes. just for her mm -hmm. uh, all the way from Brooklyn, uh, New York. Alana Eisenmarkowitz, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah. Wow, Manuel, uh, great seminar discussion today. Uh, sometimes in our profession, I think there are issues where there is maybe no exact right answer. And I think mm -hmm. we perhaps stumbled on one of those today in our discussion about school uniforms and dress codes. Uh, you know, as a former principal, as someone who's worked in, in schools with and without uh, uniform, uh, I tend to favor uh, schools having uniforms. And I think even after today's discussion, I still feel that way. But uh, at the same time, I also think that uh, there's really compelling arguments that uh, that might not be a good solution in some places. So uh, fascinating stuff. Yeah, and I wonder what a lot of our viewers think, because I think a lot of people uh, watching the show or listening um, have a particular opinion about uniforms and dress codes before hearing the seminar. Now, after the seminar, I wonder if any mm -hmm. of their uh, thoughts or views have changed any. So definitely let us know uh, where you stand on this uniform or dress code issue. And, um, you know, let's keep this conversation going. So um, now it's time for our assessment. Now, Jeff, you have something to say about our view of American schooling and American education and a, a, a bit of cognitive dissonance in how we think about schools or talk about schools. Can you break that down for us? Absolutely. Folks, there is a concept in psychology called cognitive dissonance theory. It basically suggests that people experience mental discomfort or stress when they simultaneously hold two or more contradictory contradictory beliefs, ideas, or behaviors. The theory, usually credited to the psychologist Leon Festinger, basically suggests that people don't like to feel the discomfort that comes with cognitive dissonance. So when we experience it, we are compelled to take some sort of action to reduce it. Now, one way to think of this is kind of like a mental equivalent to your hand being on a hot stove. If that happened, you'd yank your hand away to stop the burning. Obvious solution, right? But with cognitive dissonance, we have a few different ways in which people can respond. Sometimes we change our behavior so that it aligns with our beliefs. So for example, if I were training for a marathon, but I was only running one day a week, 
I could start running five days a week. Sometimes we justify our behavior by either coming up with a convenient reason why the behavior isn't inconsistent with our beliefs, like saying it's okay to not run five days a week. Some people don't even run at all. And sometimes we justify our behavior by ignoring information that conflicts with our behavior and intentionally seeking out new information that justifies it. Like saying, you know, I've read that rest is really important to training too. And I hear if you run too much, it's bad for your knees and you get shin splints. So I'm actually doing the right thing by not training too much. Hopefully you get the point. Now, some of y'all are probably saying, Jeff, that's great, but what does this have to do with education? Well, I believe we are, as a nation, suffering from a massive case of cognitive dissonance about the state of our public schools. And this is understandable because I think it is true and fair to say that when it comes to how our public schools are doing, the honest answer is things are much, much better than most people think. And things are in some ways just as bad as most people think. Now, do you feel it? The cognitive dissonance is already making you uncomfortable, isn't it? How can that be, you might ask? Well, if we look at almost every major indicator of school achievement or success in this country, Today's public schools are the highest performing we've ever had, at least since we actually began educating everyone. We have the highest high school graduation rate in American history, now topping 84%. We have the highest number and percentage of students going on to college. We have the highest number and percentage of students graduating from college. And both of those stats are true for students from low-income communities as well. We have survey data suggesting that American students and families are generally happy with their schools and teachers. We have comparative data from international surveys suggesting that American teachers are particularly caring, supportive of, and invested in meeting the special needs of their students. And even on international tests, where the data tends to be very blah at best, the reality is American students are performing about where we have been performing for the last half century, that being near or just above the middle of the pack among the wealthy nations of the world. So if lots of the data says things are getting better or staying better than they've historically been, and even the poor data shows that things are status quo, then where do we get the idea from that there is a crisis in education and that public education is such a mess that we might be better off destroying it and starting over from scratch. I would argue that the answer lies partially in the truth, but mostly in the approach that we have taken to resolve our cognitive dissonance. To be certain, there is a lot we still need to do to get to a place where we can honestly say that every child in this country is getting the education that we all deserve. We're a nation that still won't even apologize for centuries of slavery and genocide. It's not surprising that we have huge gaps in opportunity and student achievement across race, class, gender, disability status, and other identifying factors. We fund our schools on an objectively unfair property tax-based system in most states. 
We pay our teachers less than most comparable countries around the world, yet we provide them with far inferior working conditions. We routinely issue unfunded mandates to schools and expect them to do more with less. And frankly, we have sorely inadequate training programs for teachers and school leaders that leave far too many of them ill-prepared to be effective in their work. So there's work to do for sure. But if the big outcomes we care about most are saying we're doing better than ever, then something else must be happening to resolve our cognitive dissonance. This is where the plot thickens. If you're my age or younger, you have only grown up in an era of history where there has been a concerted effort, supported pretty much equally by both Democrats and Republicans, to create and sustain the narrative that American schools are in crisis and that the very public schools we love are the source of the problem. In 1983, the Reagan administration sponsored the now infamous A Nation at Risk report, which told of the ominous future we faced because of poor performance of the nation's public schools. Quote, the educational foundations of our society are presently being eroded by a rising tide of mediocrity that threatens our very future, the report said. Over the next two decades, states would create the legal conditions for charter schools to multiply, for voucher programs to grow, and would bring in an era of school choice as the political power and funding base for public school systems would be eroded. During the George W. Bush years, both parties united around the No Child Left Behind Act, which gave rise to the modern testing industrial complex and dramatically accelerated the movement towards punitive accountability for districts, schools, and teachers based almost entirely on student math and English test scores. Fast forward to the Obama years, and we saw the massive expansion of charter schools promoted with the Race to the Top agenda, which coerced states into removing their caps on charter school expansion. This has resulted in a 600% increase in the percentage of the nation's students attending charter schools. And today, in the Trump-DeVos era, we see just an utter disdain for public schools, with the administration doing all it can to undermine both K-12 public schools and public universities while favoring their private sector competitors. We as a nation have for the last four decades been resolving our cognitive dissonance about public education using that last strategy I told you about seeking out new information that justifies our belief that our public schools are the worst they've ever been and ignoring data to the contrary. It's a bit of a make America great again strategy we've been self-imposing on our school system with no honest conversation about the time in history when our schools were doing better because on the whole, it doesn't exist. Now, as I've said, I am the first to agree that we have a lot of work to do to fix the issues in our system, particularly those that strike at the heart of our nation's history of injustice. Unequal funding, segregation, racism, all of these things are problems and we need to resolve them. But we should resolve our cognitive dissonance not by distorting the reality, but by using that first strategy changing our behavior and investing more deeply and reinforcing the positive aspects of our system that are actually producing great results. 
The answer to the lingering problems in one of our bedrock public institutions isn't to slowly erode it in favor of privatization or to demonize and publicly shame educators or to wage a propaganda campaign that undermines our ability to be successful at our very ambitious goals. No, the answer lies in taking these challenges seriously having the difficult conversations about our past that we need to have, and putting resources into what we say matters most to us. The $1.5 trillion we just gave away to the richest among us, that's money our schools need. The extra $133 billion that Congress just gave to Trump for the military, that's money that should be paying to train teachers, provide them with reasonable teaching loads, better facilities, curriculum and classroom supplies that our students deserve. The more than $10 billion oil companies receive in public subsidies every year, that's money that should be spent improving teacher and administrative training programs and boosting salaries so that our best and brightest not only enter the profession, but choose to stay. Our public schools are a national treasure and one of our great institutions that make up the bedrock of a democratic society. We have problems to resolve, for sure. But we would be wise to take a step back, see the big picture, and focus on resolving them without destroying the foundation upon which we stand. Well, Jeff, that's a very sound and reasonable argument. Um, and I think you, you articulated these points very powerfully. However, um, I know that we don't really live in a world where we can have reasoned mm. argument or reasoned critique, especially about um, issues of, around education, because we're, we're so used to sort of just, just fighting from our positions and not really giving credit where credit is due. And as you said, since you know, the 80s, since the Reagan administration and continuing through the Clinton and um, Bush and Obama administration, there's been this narrative that schools are broken and we need to fix them and the whole system is just a disaster. And as a 15-year um, classroom teacher, I don't see that the whole system is a disaster. I see that there are areas where it's working really well and there are areas where it's not working well. And as you pointed out, one of the biggest um, parts that need to be reevaluated is funding and equitable funding. Um, because like from that, I mean, I've always taught in low-income communities and, and Title I schools, and funding is always, it's always a big fight over resources and, and writing grants and trying to do what you gotta do for basic supplies. And just starting there, and focusing on the funding and focusing on where we're working well and, and looking at our school system as the treasure that it is, as you mentioned, I think would be a, a good place to start. But I know that's not likely to happen anytime soon just because of the way um, we talk about schooling. Um, there's a song by Most Def that's called Life in Marvelous Times. And, and in it, he, he talks about how it looks like the whole world is burning and how everything's so terrible, but there's so much beauty in it as well. And it's always seemed like um, things were terrible and there's always been beauty as well and the beauty that you pointed out to in terms of graduation rates and achievement rates and and you know how far we've come um, we need to really really give ourselves some credit for doing that and we also need to look at the fine points that need more uh, more attention so thank you for laying that out for us uh, thanks man you know I I this is an issue I really grapple with because I, I work in the space mm -hmm. of transforming schools that have been uh, historically some of the lower performing schools uh, here in the Los Angeles area. Um, and so, I, you know, I spend a lot of time thinking about how to do the urgent, important, difficult work of making right. schools better for students and families. Um, but I think we can walk and chew gum. 
we can both say there are things that we have to fix and we have to fix now and this is urgent and we must get it done and we can still value the very important role that public schools, true public schools play uh, not only in our society but in any democratic society or society that hopes to still be democratic, small right. d, democracy, right? Um, you know, this is, this is one of the most important institutions we have. We can't simply allow ourselves to get wooed into saying, let's get rid of it and, and let's do something else. This is an important part of who we are as a, as a people. Agreed, agreed. Thank you for that. All right, folks, we're just about done with this episode. We're gonna hit you with a real quick class dismissed. All right, before we go, we wanna give a quick shout out to Chicago teacher, Miss LaShonda Carter, for demonstrating the boundless love and ongoing support that teachers provide to their students, even ones that they haven't taught in years. Last month, Miss Carter came across one of her former students on Facebook, who told her that times have been difficult. The former student, 18-year-old Larisha Plummer, mentioned that she recently had a baby and wanted to attend an upcoming job fair, but didn't have a way to get there or have anyone to watch her infant. After hearing that Larisha was considering using public transportation and taking her infant with her to the job fair, Ms. Carter said, not on my watch, and came to the rescue by driving Larisha to the job fair and sitting in the car watching the baby while Larisha networked and searched for a job opportunity. Ms. Carter then took Larisha to apply for women, infants, and children support as has, and has since used her social media network to reach out for further support for her from former student. CNN reports that Larisha now has a job and is planning to attend college this fall, and Ms. Carter has been quoted as saying, I believe every day we get the opportunity to be someone's miracle. Hmm. So shout out to Ms. Carter and all the other teachers out there who know that their service does not end when that final dismissal bell rings. Mm. Love it, love it, props. Uh, folks, thanks for joining us today. Uh, make sure you check out all of our content. It's available on our website. That's aotashow.com. Also, make sure to like and follow us on Facebook and on YouTube. Um, and check out our podcast. It's available on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you.